Well, greetings, everyone. Looks like kind of a thin crowd. I think everybody's gone to camp today. For coming back soon, we'll look forward to seeing everyone next week. Last week, we had a very interesting and helpful sermon by Dr. Douglas Winnale. He gave a great sermon in which he talked about the world's crisis of faith. It seems to be a, a theme that we're hearing now, matters of faith. God seems to think that's very important that we strengthen our faith these days. He mentioned that it's not just loss of faith in God, it's loss in faith of all of our institutions. And I found that very interesting in the press and the Congress and so forth. A crisis of trust, he mentioned. It seems to be a crisis of trust in the world. I remember back in the day, Ronald Reagan talked about trust. He said, trust but verify. I asked, do you trust the Russians? He said, yes, trust but verify. I looked that up a little bit, and I found that Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin once said, I trust no one, not even myself. Wow, what a guy. Of course, recently, Russian Premier Vladimir Putin and President Donald Trump met for various discussions. Do you suppose either man trusts the other? What do you think? I was just checking. Uh, I actually have a, a dime here. What does it say? In God we trust. Oh, really? Really? Well, trust seems to be on the decline. I was reading in, in the blog on psychology today and looking at the subject a little bit. A researcher made some interesting comments. I'd like to just read some of this. don't want to do too much. But he was talking about the same thing that we heard last week, this crisis in trust. He said a number of researchers have found that social trust appears to be in a long and steady tailspin. He's talking about social trust, society's trust with each other, the trust within our institutions. One recent AP GFK poll found out that only one-third of Americans say that most people can be trusted. Boy, I was surprised it was that many. But the problem might seem to be worse than many believe, he continues. When I recently looked at trust state by state measured by a survey, and he mentions the communications group that did this, it was documented, I found that in some states the percentage of people who reported complete levels of trust was effectively zero. Zero trust in anybody. Political scientists have proposed all sorts of reasons for the collapse of social trust and this collapse of cohesion. Whatever the exact cause, it's almost certainly a combination of causes. The bottom of line is we've lost a crucial thread of our social fabric. When I look closely at the data, he writes, I found that in some states like Tennessee, almost no one reported completely trusting strangers. Wow. I, I, do you completely trust strangers? I, some of these things are a little surprising. Think about that. In some states, almost no one believes new people that they meet, meet are fully trustworthy. I just wondered, does this mean that in some states people do fully trust strangers? Well, it's interesting. Hopefully that may be the case. But who do you trust? Who do you trust? Well, let me make a suggestion. Turn, please, to Proverbs chapter 3, and verses 5 through 6. 
Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 5 and 6. Here we're told something very important on the subject of trust. Who do we trust? Verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. We trust in God with all our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. We know that his mind is infinite. He knows all things and that he guides his people. And we allow him to direct our paths. He tells us what is right and wrong and how we should live. And he directs our paths in many different ways. We already heard in, um, in Luke chapter, or rather Hebrews chapter 11, verses 22. I'll just refer to that. I appreciated the sermon that very much. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. If you look over in verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Well, it's kind of talking about the same thing in verse 1. That's the substance of things that we haven't seen yet but are going to be there. We know they're there. We know they're coming. There's a heavenly city. And they could see it because they had spiritual vision. They looked through the eyes of faith. They trusted God that he could do what he said. So they had the spiritual vision, and they could see things that were not yet seen in an important way. So especially Noah in that case. So today, I would like to look at this matter from of trust, first from a physical and worldly perspective. Just look at trust. Let's talk about trust a little bit in a worldly way. And then second, from a spiritual perspective, we're going to allow the worldly perspective to bridge us over to the spiritual perspective, and then also from a personal perspective. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? And that's the title of the sermon today. And I would like to use this principles of worldly trust to teach us things about spiritual trust. And I give them some of these points in uh, sermons in other church areas, and I would like to talk about them some uh, here today as well, because there are some important things that we need to remember about the state of God's church today. There are things that are very important to me about this, this matter of trust, and I think they may be important to you as well. And then some important things we can learn from all of this about our conversion. So point number one, let's do the worldly view. And I'll uh, warn you in advance, this is taken from uh, 1 Wakefield chapter 4, the non-inspired version. This is uh, not necessarily church doctrine, just some things that I've learned in life. Human trust, who do you trust? You trust politicians? I remember Lyndon Johnson's, he's supposed to have actually said this. He has two rules of politics, get elected, get reelected. Those are his two rules of politics, Lyndon Johnson, and he lived by them his whole life. I can trust him for that. I can trust politicians to go by Lyndon Johnson's uh, two rules of politics. But, you know, when you make a loan to someone, do you trust them to pay it back? Well, if you made the loan, you probably did. But, you know, uh, in the banking industry, they sometimes they run across people who have this attitude of a dollar borrowed is a dollar earned. You know, they're not going to pay it back if they can possibly get out of it. You can't trust them to do that. 
I know you're thinking right now, oh boy, Wakefield's getting cynical in his old age. You know, he's um, been through the wars and been around the track too many times. Well, that's actually so. Um, <laughs> but not, not so. I, let me say that's actually not so. It's just the opposite of that. It's just the opposite of that. I trust everybody. Believe it or not, if I, if they had asked me that question in the survey that do you trust new people, do you trust old people, do you trust everybody around you, I would say yes, I trust everybody. It's just that I trust different people for different things. I don't always trust everybody for the same things. You know, you can't necessarily get the right answer unless you ask the right question. And to me, the question isn't just uh, who do you trust, is what can I trust different people for? So let me just give you some examples. All right, Mr. Wakefield, do you trust your wife? Yes, yes, I trust my wife, of course. I trust her with my home, my finances. I trusted her with raising my kids, my life, my heart. Of course I trust my wife. But, uh, If I need knee surgery, maybe I need hip surgery, I don't say, honey, sharpen a steak knife. I think I need surgery. No. You know, you would, if I need, you know, to have a cavity, I don't say, honey, go out to the workbench and get my drill. I think I need, you know, to repair this cavity. No, I don't do that for that. I uh, don't trust her for things that I know she can't do. You know, if you need legal documents, well, you go to an attorney to do that. You know, it's very important to do that. Some of my staff can answer this question. Do you know what the most expensive thing in the world is? And somebody that's nodded their heads out there. It's a cheap attorney, let me tell you. You want to get the right people for doing the right thing. You want to trust the right people for the right thing. So continuing on this matter of worldly trust, let me illustrate of a few of Wakefield's rules of trust in business. Once again, this is not official church doctrine, just a little life experience. First one, I trust people to act in their own interests. How about that? You can trust people to act in their own pretty generally. Granted, sometimes people will surprise you and they'll act altruistically, but usually you can't rely on it. What I try to do is assess what a person's interests are, their real interests in a situation. We talk about business and maybe even in the work, things that we do there. And then I can, eh, I can maybe predict what they're going to do in the future when I figure out what their interests are. Here's a second one. I usually trust people to act in my interests to the extent that my interests are aligned with theirs. Some people call that the art of the deal. One, each party aligning their interests, so then that lowers risk. They have a pretty good idea of what the other guy is going to do if they're acting in their own interests. In a certain extent, they're acting in the others. The third one, I do not trust people, um, let's see, I don't, don't trust people to always act rationally. Here's a mistake that people, don't secure yourself with the assumption that someone will do what you consider to be the reasonable thing. That's called projecting. 
You say, well, this is, this is, makes sense. And why, A, B, and C, this makes sense to me. So I figure that's what this guy's going to do. No, they don't necessarily do that at all. They have their own priorities. They have their own assumptions. They're going to, you, you, some of the worst mistakes people make is assuming people will do what they figure is rational for the other person to do. They don't always do that. They don't always see things the same way. They don't always think the same way. They don't always reason the same way. You ever heard the story of the frog and the scorpion? It's the fable of the frog and the scorpion. You know it's a fable when you have two animals talking to each other. So that's what this is. You'll probably remember this. I bet some of you have heard this. There was a, a frog. He was hopping along. and He came to a swollen stream, and he was going to go across and there was a scorpion waiting there, and he wanted to cross the stream too. The scorpion said to the frog, hey, look, let me hop on your back, and I'll ride across there with you to the other side. And the frog says, are you kidding me? I won't do that. You'll sting me, and I'll die in the middle of the stream. And the scorpion said, why would I do that? We'll both die. Why would I sting you if I'm on your back? And the frog said, yeah, you know, that kind of makes sense. I, I, I see that. Okay, hop on. So he was going across the stream, and they got right in the middle, and the scorpion just stung him, just stung him as hard as he could. And the frog cried out, and as he was sinking in paralysis into the stream, he said, why did you do that? Now we're both going to die. And the scorpion said, it's just my nature. That's what scorpions do. He figured it wrong. He figured it wrong. Well, some things people will do... Things that are just inexplicable simply because that's who they are. And you can't necessarily figure that in advance. You have to be careful for it. But, you know, some people will do good things, too. You don't expect it. That doesn't make any sense. But they did something really good. You know why? It's because that's who they are. That's a lot of a lot of people in the church are that way. I'd say almost everybody in the church is that way. They're just going around doing good randomly. That's just who they are. You're God's people, and we do that. It's a matter of character. You know, another one, another item. I don't trust people to reach the same conclusion that I do from the same set of facts. That's kind of a parallel to the one I just told. You don't believe that? Go to Washington, D.C. The place is full of brilliant people who are highly educated. They look at the same set of facts and come to totally different conclusions. Because they don't always do that. Here's another one. This is kind of a cynical one, but this is the result of running around the track a few times in life. I trust people to get away with as much as they can. You're going to find that a lot. Not in the church. We act in each other's interests all the time. But out in the world, people do that. Read the contract carefully because that's probably what is going to um, be the final thing. Um, people won't necessarily try to be fair. And they will do every advantage, often in business relationships. I found that out through life. So it makes sense to be very careful, to look at things very carefully. I do this in our office all the time, especially with our very good people in legal and risk and our very good people in accounting and our very good people in mail processing and other areas there. That we are 
We just have to be very careful with who we deal with out in the world, and we often are, and we're very happy that we have been on many occasions. Now, this last one, this is a big one. This is a big one, and we're going to be coming back to this as we go through the sermon today. I trust people's actions to reflect their character. I trust people's actions to reflect their character. And this is an important principle. It was kind of a game I played in life, going back over all of my years in the business world and many times in the church and so forth as well, that um, a person's character is an important predictor of what they will do in the future. And I watch and I try to assess this person's character. And I'm going to predict what this guy is going to do in the future just based on what I've watched him do. Maybe how this person drives. You ever watch how a person drive? Do they cut in public? Do they let people in? Do they run through the red light? Do they pull into the handicapped spot when they shouldn't? All of those things. Watch them carefully. Hey, i got a, got a fix on this guy. I'm going to be careful about this fellow. You can assess people's character a lot of things by small things that they do. I trust people's actions to re- express their character. It's a principle in the Bible. Sometimes a person will ask the manipulative question, well, don't you trust me? You ever had somebody hit you with that? It's manipulative. You know, you feel really bad because you don't want to say, well, no, I don't really trust you. I mean, that, and they'll be offended and they'll say, well, what a bad person you are. And they flipped it back on you when you do that. You know, um, I usually don't answer that question yes and no, yes or no. I may answer that question. Well, I trust different people for different things. What can I trust you for? Let's talk about that. That usually stops the conversation. You know, I break it down. I sort it out. History, character, their motivation, their priorities, how they think, their competence. You don't trust somebody to do something they're incapable of. You have to assess all of these things to find out who you find out who you can trust in the world. This is worldly, very worldly stuff we're we're talking about here. So to summarize point number one, in worldly matters, you can't trust everyone the same way because people are different. People are just different. And their abilities and their characters are different, especially their characters. But you can trust different people for different things and to act in accordance with their character. What can people trust you to do? Hmm? Interesting thing to think about. All right, point number two. Point number two. In the second point, let's take this a step closer to the spiritual as we think about it. You know, we usually don't dwell on the apostasy of our former association, but I'd like to talk about that just a little bit uh, here today. It's worth mentioning a few details. And for those of you who are in the church in you know, a couple of last couple of decades, this may not mean quite as much to you, but those who are here um, before then, the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, will know what I was talking about. I was baptized in the Worldwide Church of God in 1976, and the apostasy began shortly after that, after Mr. Armstrong's death in 1986. I joined the Global uh, Church of God in um, 
1995. This was before it was became the Living Church of God. And I like to say it just became the Living Church of God because three-quarters, 80 percent, whatever it is of the people did um, come to the Living Church of God with, with Dr. Meredith. But before I did that, back in 1980, uh, 1995, I asked myself some very important questions about trust. I got a little confession to make here uh, about that. I, uh, I had some serious trust issues back in those days. I may, maybe some of you did too. We had seen people that we thought were faithful to the truth go away from it. We seen ministers that we thought were faithful to the truth attack what we believed. So I wasn't quite sure who I could trust about some of these things. Well, asking the right question is important. I've known that for a long time. So I asked, can I trust certain individuals in our former association to continue attacking our belief and our practice until they've destroyed it? That was going on. I said, I think I can. I decided that was the case. And then, this is back in 1994, 1995, I asked the question, can I trust Dr. Roderick C. Meredith to hold on to the truth that God restored to the church by Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong? Thought about it, thought about it, investigated it, and I said, yes, I can. I can trust him to do exactly that. His history showed that. His character showed that. His motivation showed that. I could see his priorities. It showed that. I checked him out carefully. I did not know Dr. Meredith personally. I'd heard him give a sermon once in 1979, 1980, and that was in the feast in Savannah, and I was completely distracted because right after the sermon, somebody introduced me to a beautiful young woman that I invited out to lunch who later became my wife. So I, I barely remember anything else that happened about that. But I did hear and see Dr. Meredith one time, and I remember that it was a powerful sermon, a strong sermon that day that, you know, that he gave. I checked him out carefully. I also noticed that the other groups that were extant or prenatal at that time, the ministry that was all over the map, doctrinally. They were saying that, all over the map, doctrinally. You probably remember that phrase. So I did my homework. I learned the true circumstances of Dr. Meredith's um, departure, be retired or fired. He didn't take the money. Others did. He was a man of integrity, a man of character. I think I could trust him. I could trust a person like that. I was looking for the truth and the work. You've heard me talk about that before, the truth and the work. The reason why is God's truth endures forever. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't get tired. It endures. It's always there forever. And Christ always works. Where does he stop working? He doesn't take sabbaticals. He is always working. Even on Sabbath, he's working with us today in a spiritual way, in a proper, holy, spiritual way. I knew the truth and the work would be around somewhere. All I had to do was find it. Where could it be? Where could it be? I know it's there somewhere. And I found it. I asked the question, can I trust Dr. Roderick C. Meredith to continue to do the work of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God? Yes. It's the first thing they did. Got the... Some pocket change and what, credit card balances? I don't know. Within weeks, 
They were out on a, he was out on a station somewhere. He's an evangelist. You can't stop him from evangelizing. People tried it, and you could not stop him from doing it. He was an evangelist, the real thing, and I was convinced of that. He had the ordination. He had the works to prove what he was. So it was good to be back, you know, backing the work again, once again to be backing it. I know many of you remember that wonderful feeling. Well, in recent times, I've asked the question again, what can I trust Mr. Gerald Weston for? You know, I've seen that he's been a hardworking and self-sacrificing minister of God's work since his um, graduation from, uh, from Ambassador College a long time ago. He's served in many church areas. Both he and um, his um, wife, Carol, have been totally committed to the work all of these years. And when I talk about the ministry, I, I like to include the wives. Believe me, they are half of our ministry. If you've ever been a pastor or you've ever been an elder, if you are, are one, you will find that out. The wives really matter. And they have, it's extremely important to his work. They have uh, been um, proven their dedication to God's truth and God's work countless times over. He's also demonstrated his ability, ability to advance the work in Canada, Europe. And, of course, he's done a fine job here in Charlotte. He truly cares about God's people. I know because I talk to him all the time. I report to him. I trust him to continue on that path. Trust, trust. You evaluate something, you look at it carefully, and you decide what you can trust people for. It's been his whole life. It's been their whole life. And that's why Dr. Meredith chose Mr. Gerald Weston to succeed him. He will keep a complete focus on the truth and energetically pursue the work. And he'll take the gospel of the kingdom of God to the world. We can trust him for that. Here's some things I think we can trust Mr. Wesson to do, and I, he's not here. Maybe I could talk about him a little bit today. Of course, many, many other things, but I just want to list a few things. I mentioned the truth and the work, those two very broad, general, important categories. And to manage the work well is the personnel, his finances, all of his resources, to make executive decisions and to do them decisively. He's a good executive. Dr. Meredith, a superb executive. One of the first things I noticed about him, an excellent executive is not the same as a manager. Some managers are good executive, and, and some executives are not very good managers. I think he's been both. But both men are good executives. He can make decisions. He has a vision for the work. Now, he's going to do, continue what we've been doing, but he's going to expand and advance. I know because I've seen him talk about it. We have meetings about it with the staff all the time. How to go forward, how to advance, how to expand the work, how to do more. How can we use these assets, these, these um, resources more efficiently? We see these things going on all the time. He has a vision for the work. We can trust him to command the respect of the church and the headquarters staff. We've already seen that. To feed and protect the flock. Yes, to feed and to protect. Wolves watch out. Wolves watch out. And to evangelize. He is an evangelist, just as Dr. Meredith was. And then to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God to the world. He is deeply committed to our international work. And we hope we're going to be able to advance that even more 
in the coming years. So to summarize point number two, over the years, not assessment of Dr. Meredith and Mr. Weston and the Living Church of God ministry has been repeatedly confirmed. And this is an important statement. I don't know if this is important to you or not as it is to me, but I can say that trust in the ministry has been restored in God's church. Trust in the ministry has been restored in God's church. We can trust the church leadership to hold on to the truth and to do the work. And this is a very important thing for us to remember and to give thanks for, to give thanks to God for that and ask him to continue that as the trust disintegrates in the world around us, as the bonds that hold people together disintegrate, as trust in God disintegrates in the world around us. We can trust our ministry to lead and follow Christ. You know, um, Dr. Meredith used to say, and all the time, that Christ leads the church. Well, he does. I want to add a little something to that today. I mentioned it to him also. Our ministry follows Christ. Our ministry follows Christ. And our church is being led today by a ministry that follows Christ. Maybe we take that for granted. Let's not. There was a time when it didn't. Let's be thankful for it and thank God for it. Point number three. Point number three. How about us personally? All right. I'm going from preaching to meddling now. All right. What can God trust us for? What can God trust me for? What can God trust you for? We're going to be immortal kings and priests in his kingdom. So maybe this is an important question. He wants to know. He wants to know. Turn to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. There's a reward according to works. It's interesting, we were heard in the sermonette today about some of the difficulties that our friends out in the, in the um, mainstream churches have with subjects like law and grace. And but this is one that really have trouble with, is reward, a reward for works. And they kind of struggle with this sometimes, I've heard it. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Rewards? I thought works didn't matter. No, we're going to be rewarded with according to our works. That really throws them sometimes. Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Maybe we'll just break in here. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Whatever reward you have, your treasure in heaven, Christ brings it with him when he comes to the earth, when he returns. When the trumpet sounds, the dead are raised. One of the things he brings with him is your reward. Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30. Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, tells us what that reward consists of. There's not a new bass boat. It's um, not a new car. It's not a jewelry. Offices. Offices in his kingdom. 
He is coming back. The first thing he does is transform us to immortality. Then he proceeds and he destroys the adversary, locks him up, destroys his kingdom. And then he sets up his kingdom. Offices, offices. Verse 28. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They had asked him, hey, what's our reward? What are we getting for all of this? And he said, offices in his kingdom. That is your reward as well. But what offices? What offices? Hmm. Turn to Luke chapter 19. Verses 15 through 27, this is a familiar parable. We'll skip around through it a little bit. just want to point this out. It's a very important biblical principle, and I mean a whopper. It is Genesis to Revelation in this book. You find it throughout in God's Word. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Simple principle, but it is very important to God, and I'd like us to understand it better today in the context of what we're talking about here. Luke chapter 19, and verse 15. Faithful and little, faithful and much is how God knows what he can trust you for. Verse 15. And so when he returned, having received the kingdom, you're breaking into the middle of this, the parable of the minors, He commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your miner has earned you ten miners. Wow! Boy, was he a profitable servant. And uh, ten miners, in verse 17, and he said to them, "Well, well, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. Well, few little miners. And look, he gave him authority over ten cities. That's because he knew what he could do. He knew what his his capabilities were, what his characters were. He could do all of that. Verse 18, and the second came, saying, Master, your miners earned you five miners. And he said this, likewise to the same uh, one, five cities, for the same reason. Then we had the poor last guy, and he comes up and said, Well, I got one miner, and... uh, I hid it away. I didn't even put it in uh, Wells Fargo where I could get almost no interest. (laughs) Maybe that was the situation back then. They said, well, at least you could have done something, get a CD. Why didn't you do something with that? He said, well, you know, you're a a stern man, and I was afraid, so I just hid it away. Here it is. Uh Uh-oh. And that's not so good. He said, verse 22, and he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that my, at my coming I might have it with, uh, collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten. But they said to him, master, he's got ten already. And just to, as an aside, I was wondered, there were several reasons, of course, why he did that. I always wondered, he could have given it to the guy who had five. But, you know, that would have increased his responsibility by 20%. It only increased the 10 minor guy by 10%. So maybe he would have the ability to do it. 
even more ability to do it. Verse 26. For I say to you that everyone who, um, to everyone, uh, who has, will be given, and to him who does not have even what he has will be taken away. And maybe that's because of their character. If they don't have it, how can they have the office? How can they rule one city? Can't even rule a block. Maybe can't even rule his own home. So from him who can't do it at all, whatever he has will be taken away. You know, there's this grace versus reward question. I'd like to summarize it this way. God's word teaches that obtaining eternal life and entering the kingdom of God is a free gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We all believe that. That is a firm belief in our church. But what you do after you have entered the kingdom is by reward according to works. Entering the kingdom is one thing. You can't earn that. That's eternal. Nothing you've got can buy it. Nothing you can do can earn something that is infinite. But God is going to look at what you've done all of your life. He's going to look at your character. He's going to look at your works. And he says, what can I trust him for? What can I trust Wakefield for? What can I trust this this man or this woman for to do? And thereby to give them a reward, their office. What can God trust you to do forever? Wow. What can he trust you to do? How about just the next week? What can he trust you to do? Well, it's the character that he's building in you and me that determines that. That's what determines it. Those works demonstrate your true character and what God can trust you to do forever. You know, I was thinking about this and Maybe this is one reason we can rejoice in trials. We all go through trials, but we have trials. But, you know, when we do have trials, God watches and see how we handle it. How did you deal with this trial? How did you work with it? How did you work your way through it? Did you trust him? Did you go to God's word and look at the principles? Did you try to repent? Did you see what you needed to do to change? He's going to look at all of these things when we go through trials. Maybe um, our trial... The fact that God does evaluate us and he does change us and he does work with us, it does, our trials do produce works and they do change us, is a good reason we can rejoice in our trials. Because he makes all things work together for those who love him. And maybe those who trust him as well to do these things. Rejoicing in trials. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 Philippians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> Just a kind of a, a take on the scripture. When the trumpet sounds, God will change what you are, not who you are. When the trumpet sounds, the dead are raised incorruptible, or we are still on the earth, are changed, transformed into spirit, and we put on immortality. God changes what we are. This old body is creaking around and got problems, gray hair and everything. This old body, I'm going to put on a new tabernacle, and so are you if we're faithful to the end. He's going to change what I am corporally. He's not going to change who I am. That's kind of scary in a way. 
He's not going to change who you are. It's going to be the same person. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue even all things to himself. That's quite a body. Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't have a body like that. A body that can subdue all things. That's power. Ah, But what can he trust us to do with that? Maybe that's important. Maybe it's important for him to know that. That he can rely on us to do it. You know, they say you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. All of these wealthy guys, you know, they say, you know, maybe I'm going to figure out a way to take it with you. I I saw a cartoon a long time ago. I still remember it. It It's really funny. That was um, one of these things where the guys sitting on clouds up in heaven. You know, it's a cartoon. And... A couple of guys are sitting on one, standing on one cloud, you know, they've got halos around their head and they're in the cartoon and they're looking at another guy and he's going by in a cloud-shaped Cadillac with a couple of beautiful angels in the back seat. And the two guys are kind of looking at that and kind of considering and saying, he found a way to take it with him. Well, that's not true. But there there are at least three things that you can take with you. Let's talk about them. We won't go into it in a lot of detail. One of them is your character, who you are. You're still going to be you when you put on immortality. You know, if you were a lying, cheating, stealing, backstabbing person, you're still going to be one. It's your same character. It's the same person. If you're a wonderful, godly, giving, loving, serving person, yes, the same person, but immortal and powerful. Second, your reward for works, Christ brings that with him from heaven. Your reward. He's up there putting together offices, putting together all of these things. He's establishing all of these things now. And he's going to bring your reward with him, your treasure in heaven. You do have it now. You don't go there to get it. He brings it with him. We won't go through all of those scriptures. I think you know that. Number three, here's an interesting one. Your relationships. How about that? You realize, you ever think about that? We're going to take our relationships with us into the kingdom of God. We're going to be together forever. Maybe we need to learn how to get along. What do you think? Sure. I'm looking forward to that. I could see being with you guys forever. I'd like to be with God's people forever. What a wonderful thought. We take our relationships with us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 and 54. Probably a memory scripture for you, but let's read it anyway. It tells us what's going to happen, what we're going to put on, this body that we're going to put on. said, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. We put it on. We change our body. We put on another tabernacle, as Paul said. And he longed for that tabernacle. And boy, I do too. And I know you do too as well. 
Verse 54, for when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has, this is in the future. You're not immortal now. This says so. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Luke chapter 22, verse 27. Luke chapter 22, verse 27. Let's remember what Jesus said about offices and about authority. Who is great in the kingdom? Who has office? Who has authority? Well, it's the exact reverse of how people think in the world. The literally the mirror opposite of how the world thinks. Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table yet? I am among you as the one who serves. He served the most. No one did more than he did. An infinite life came and died for us so that we could be cleansed of our sins and then was resurrected, the firstborn of many, leading the way for all of us. No one served more than him. He is the greatest, and he serves the most. Then the apostles, they will serve ruling the um, ten tri- or the twelve tribes of Israel under him, having thrones that they will sit on, and authority. You know, the carnal mind sees, uses authority to serve itself, whereas the spiritual mind uses authority only to serve others. That's the spiritual mind. You know, God gives a man an authority in his own house. But you know why he does it? So that he can serve his family. If he uses it to serve himself, he misuses it. He gives his ministry. A pastor, for instance, he gives the pastor certain authority over the churches. How to do things, you do this and do that, let's set up this way, let's have this schedule and so forth. I know I've done it. But if you use it to serve yourself as a pastor... You misuse it. It, Authority, spiritual authority, is used for the purposes of serving others. If all men use their authority to serve their families, there would not be questions in their family about them doing it. People would say, yes, that's wonderful, the wives and families, that's great. We like that because it's helping us. It's good for us. I like to say at headquarters when the people come through to, and the tours, we get the tours coming through a good bit. And what do I say when I talk about my, the different departments I do? I serve legal and risk. I serve mail processing. I serve this and that. These are the places that I serve. I'm there to help them do their jobs better. Don't always succeed. Don't always succeed in doing that and get things wrong sometimes. But they're patient with me. And the idea is to serve them and do it. I don't know, I should mention this. I, sometimes I said, tell them that my real job, what my real job is, is to keep all the nonsense that happens in operations off the presiding evangelist's desk. And that's my real job, I think, sometimes. I don't always succeed at that either, by the way. The servant leadership doctrine is Living Church of God's basic governmental doctrine. The government in both the church And in God's kingdom is based on it. If you don't like it in the church, what makes you think you're going to like it in the kingdom? Both places. We're in training for this. God wants to know. How will you behave? What do you like? What do you really like? What do you choose? What can he trust you for? Our reward 
And the kingdom is a position of service. Authority in the kingdom is top down, as it is in the church. But our reward is a position of service forever, of giving, of loving. I like to ask sometimes, what is your will? How do you think about that? You say, well, um, I'm talking about, oh, this person's will is to do this, and this person's will is to do that. How would you define will? Your will. Can you think of what that means? Here's a general definition. It is your power to choose. Your will is your power to make a choice. So when you have the power to choose, what do you choose? Or we don't always have the power to choose. But often we do. And when you do, how do you exercise it? Your power to choose. Now, when we go out, I may, uh, after services, I may go and say, well, I'll have a pretzel. I choose a pretzel, and I'll choose this, and I'll choose that. But when you have the ability to choose in life, in a situation, go this way or go that way, do this or do that, what do you choose? Do you make choices as God does? You know, back in, way back in the day when I first was finding out about the Sabbath, a long time ago, I used to, I, I said, ah, this is right. You know, the Sabbath is this holy time. I've been profaning it all my life. Everybody's going to think I'm crazy. All my friends, they're going to think I've gone nuts. Maybe I have gone nuts. What am I going to do? I'm going to obey God. I'm going to obey God and keep his Sabbath holy. I'm going to stop working on Saturday. Well, that was obedience. I mean, that was grit-your-teeth obedience the first few times I did that. It was not easy. Maybe it wasn't easy for you either if you came out of the world and into the church. But that's not the case now. You know, I choose to do so. I look forward to it every every week. Is it Sabbath yet? Mm, It's going to be soon. I'm looking forward to it. I love the Sabbath. But God's Sabbath is a delight. It's a wonderful thing. We're supposed to call it a delight. His holiness of his Sabbath, holy time we're in, a delightful thing for us. We choose it. You know, in a certain sense, I, I, I'm not obeying anymore about the Sabbath. I'm doing exactly what I want to do on the Sabbath. I want to keep it as holy as I can. I love the Sabbath, and so do you. That's why you're here today. Well, God wants us to obey him from the heart, to choose to do so. That's what you want to do. You're going to get to do what you want to do forever. Wouldn't that be nice? But that requires conversion, requires conversion. So to summarize point number three, what can God trust you to do? Will you gladly live a life of loving service Forever, gladly do it. He wants to know. He wants to know. So he's transforming us inwardly so he can trust us that we will choose as he does forever because we want to. And we have to choose to keep the leaven of sin out of our lives now. Why? We want to. Might make a mistake. I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I want to change. I want to repent. I want to do that, you may say. To live repentant lives because we want to. To feed on Christ and to study his word because, well, we want to. I'm looking forward to my study time. Prayer daily. How important. 
twice a day or more, to forgive one another and to serve one another in love. Because that's just because who we are. That's what we want to do. You're that way. All of God's people are that way. To forgive one another, to love one another. That's God's Spirit changing you. To stay on track doctrinally. That's important. You know, how people going out on the Internet and scratching their ears a little bit and say, boy, I want to look for some new nonsense on the Internet today. See what I can find. You know, people who get, and I've seen this for so long, so many cases, people who get in doctrinal trouble from grubbing around in the garbage cans on the Internet, the reason why they do it is that they don't value the truth they have. I don't know of an exception to that. They get out there and they don't value God's truth. If you value it, you hold on to it. You look for it and you find it. Well, in God's church, it's bolted to the floor here. It's bolted to the floor in the living church of God. It's not going anywhere. Now, we value that. Be sure to hold on to it. To support God's work. Is that just something you want to do? I'm really, I like supporting God's work. Is that something you want to do? Hey, you're, you're all that way. I'm not challenging you. And I know you're that way. I know you are. But I'm just pointing it out. It's something you do from the heart. You want to do it. You, it's one of the reasons that so many people are here at headquarters. People, they are dedicated people at headquarters. I trust you guys who work at headquarters to want to do the work. I've seen it for six years. You're committed. You're committed. What's in your character? God wants to know. Okay, point number four. What can we trust God to do? What can we trust God to do? You know, we've talked about what can God can trust us to do. And we said, what can you trust God to do? Turn to James, James chapter 4 and verse 3. James chapter 4 and verse 3. Can we trust God to do anything we ask him to do? Can we trust God for that? Well, maybe not. You want to know why? It's because our wills are not fully his. And we don't ask for the right things. We ask for things that lead us in the wrong way. And he wants good for us, not bad for us. We need to ask in the right way. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. I always kind of like the scripture. It's, it's so graphic. It's so graphic. I've had four kids, and I, I could just, it really just kind of hits me, the scripture. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread, from any father among you, will he give him a stone? I was, you ever stopped on that scripture and think about it? That one always hits me. I see one of my kids, um, 
come up, two girls and two boys. One comes and said, Dad, I'm, I'm so hungry. I haven't been able to eat all day. I missed breakfast. I didn't get lunch at school. I'm starving. Can I have a piece of bread? I kind of have some bread. That roll over there. Here, kid, eat this rock. <laughs> that's, that's what the picture that draws in. Well, that's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Any father would say, yes, of course, I'll get you something to eat. Here it is. Put some peanut butter on it and a little jam. How about that? Here's a piece of bread. Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Oh, sorry. If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Here, kid, eat this snake. You know, of course not. It's ridiculous. Or an egg or a scorpion. Verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He wants you to have good things. He wants you to have his spirit, that transforming spirit that transforms you and changes you inwardly and gives you peace in life and confidence and trust in him and his word. That gives you the spiritual vision, the eyes that see the holy city far off and the ears that hear his word today. It comes by God's spirit. He wants that. That's why he gave his spirit. Well, let's talk about the spirit. Let's talk about faith. People say, Lord, Lord, give me more of your Holy Spirit. What, one thing he might ask is, what are you doing with what you've got? You know, do you stir that spirit up? Well, maybe not. You know, does my spirit lead you every day? Do you respond to it when my spirit shows you that you should do this? You say, no, no, I'm going to go do what I wanted to do. Are you led by his spirit? It's kind of like the miners, Remember? Let God's Spirit lead you. Respond to His Spirit. And then say, Father, give me more Spirit. He said, here it comes. Here it comes. But then use what He gives you. How about faith? Lord, I need more faith. Give me more faith. Great. What are you doing with what you got now? Do you act on it? We're required to act on our faith. That's living faith. You know, there's two kinds of faith. Living faith and dead faith. Your dead faith does nothing. Act on the faith you've got. Live it. And then say, Father, give me more faith. Here it comes. I'm going to double you up, buddy. You've been really faithful to what I've given you. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Watch out. Here it comes. He's faithful to do that. Here's a very brief answer. To what we can trust God to do. You could give sermons of all kinds on this, but I'm going to condense it down to a couple of things for the purpose of what we're talking about today. What can we trust God to do? One, we can trust God to do what he says he will do, and that's a lot. Look at his word. Look what he said. That's what he's going to do. And you can trust him to do that. The second, we can trust God to stick to his agenda. He has one. And that agenda involves bringing many sons to glory. You're part of it. That's why you're here. Bringing many sons to glory. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. His good pleasure to do that. And he's going to do it. He is going to do it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. An encouraging scripture. I just like to read this one sometimes. 
I said before, it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We didn't look that one up, but here's kind of referenced again. Verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There's no other. I am God. There's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And one of the things that is his pleasure is making you immortal in his kingdom forever. Daniel Daniel chapter 2, verses 45. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 45. We're breaking into the chapter here. This is a familiar one. This is the great image of Babylon. We're breaking into the description by Daniel. Inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands and that broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, and the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. Okay? The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Take it to the bank, Nebuchadnezzar. This is what's going to happen throughout history. We're going to have these Four different phases of Babylon. And we're seeing the ten toes coming up now. Even seeing the iron and clay forming over there. All of these things are coming. They're coming to pass. The interpretation is sure. God tells the past and the future history as it relates to his plan. You know, how many different wars have there been? A zillion of them. But you can read in God's word about the wars that matter to his plan. How many conversations have there been? Can't imagine. But you can read conversations that took place thousands of years ago that relate to his plan. That's the past history. But you can also read future history, things that will happen in the future. We call that prophecy. In the world, we tend to... Think of terms of probabilities. You know, there's a saying, there's nothing sure but death and taxes. Maybe not. Maybe not. We think of probabilities in the world. You ever, you know, look at your cell phone or something, and what's the weather going to be? Well, um, on Sunday, maybe there's a 30% chance of rain. Okay? If you look, if Monday you look back where you live, you know whether or not it rained. It's 100%. Certainty, because that's history, whether or not it rained at your house that particular day. Last spring, I don't know how many of you follow baseball, a very interesting thing happened last spring. What would you have said the chances of the Chicago Cubs winning the world history in 2016, of the World Series in 2016? What would you have said? The chance of if you played odds on these things, maybe you don't follow baseball. I don't follow it that much. I'll just point out that the last time they had played um, was in 1945. That they had been in the World Series was 1945, the Chicago Cubs. You know, the last time they won the World Series, 1908. You want to give that odds? Five percent, ten percent? Well, I can tell you with 100 percent certainty who won. It was the Cubs. That's because it's history. We know that that happened. God's prophecies tell us future history. And the chances of it actually happening are 100%. 
It's as certain as if it had already happened. I don't say there's such a thing as a conditional prophecy. If you do this, then that will happen. Those, we can uh, talk about those things. But if God does something, will says something will happen unconditionally, then it will. God's prophecies are as certain as if they had already happened. We can trust him for that. God gives prophecy as proof that he is God, the creator God, among many other things. And if there's such a thing as prophecy, brethren, the implications are enormous. Enormous. You know, Mr. Armstrong used to say, don't believe me, believe your Bible. And that's very good advice. We believe what God said. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Amos chapter 3 and verse 7. Talks about prophecy. So surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And God also said that the gates of hell or the gates of the grave will not prevail against his church. They haven't so far, and they will not in the future. Trust God. God foretells what will happen, and he tells us why, but necessarily the when and the how. You know, we kind of get into a problem in these things when, when we forget about the, the what and, um, and the why and start trying to predict the when and the how. God tells us that we can't necessarily do those things. I like to point out the, the difference between observation and prediction and prophecy. Can you tell the difference? An observation is, if I walk outside, stare at the sky, and says, it looks like it will rain today. That's an observation. If I walk out and stare at the sky and say, it will rain today, that's a prediction. If I walk outside and say, God says it will rain today, that's a prophecy, okay? And we've got these guys running around that are saying they're prophets, and they're not. They're wrong. I would just like to mention that if you believe you are a prophet, uh, after services, Mr. Rod McNair would like to see you over here on the side. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Acts chapter 3, verse 21. God has an agenda, and he has revealed it, and we can trust God to carry it out. What he says is certain to happen. God has an agenda. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. He has an agenda. He has been telling this from the beginning. And why? We'll turn there with 1 Corinthians 10, 11. You can look at it later. Because of his church, the people for whom or of whom the ends of the earth are come. Now, when, um, when it talks about that, the word ends in that scripture is telos. It means the goal or the final outcome, not the termination of it. You're the people that the whole purpose of what he is doing, his agenda, his prophecies, everything, are for you. He is bringing many sons to glory. We can trust him to do it. It's really important to him. And he will accomplish it. God's gospel of the kingdom of God is a prophetic gospel. And he foretold it from the beginning and is coming 
is as certain as if it had already happened. Trust God for that. So summary of point number four. We can trust God to do what he says and to accomplish all his purpose. And we need to remain part of that purpose. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. Just I add something else. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Just to add to that summary. I think some important things are stated here in the Ephesians chapter 4, and we begin in verse 11. And he, referring to Christ, gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists. That is an office in the church. Why did he do that? And some pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he do that? This is in a descending order of authority. Verse 12. Here he is. For the perfecting of the saints is one of them. For the work of the ministry is another one. For the edifying of the body of Christ. He did it for us. The work the work of the ministry, the perfecting of the saints. He's doing it for you. He created these offices. They're offices of service. And the result, verse 13, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, meaning complete, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what God is accomplishing through his ministry. Remember that, brethren. You can trust that Christ, what he is saying, is true. And he is accomplishing that through his ministry. We are not perfect. We're not, you know, we've still got a long way to go ourselves. But I have learned that Christ worked through Harry W. Armstrong. He surely did. He worked through Mr. Roderick C. Meredith. He's working through Gerald Weston. He's working through Mr. McNair. He's working through the elders and the ministers. He's working through the pastors and all around the world, all around the nation. He does that. You can trust him to do that. So we should do that. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness where they lie in wait to deceive. Wolves watch out. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual workings of every, in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. So earlier I asked the question, who do you trust? Who do you trust? Well, one, in the world, we trust different people for different things. And we went over some worldly principles, maybe very worldly principles about those things. Maybe they'll be helpful, but hopefully they will help us to understand some of the spiritual things. Secondly, we looked at... 
the fact that trust has been restored in our ministry, the ones through whom Christ works to accomplish the things I just mentioned. Many things, of course, we can trust, but we have affirmed that we can trust our ministry to hold on to the truth and do the work and many other things. It's a great blessing. Let's be thankful for it. I've worked very carefully with both Dr. Meredith and thank God for his ministry, and now with Gerald Weston. And I'm convinced that we can trust Mr. Weston to stick with the truth and to take the work of God forward with a complete, intense focus. We can trust him to do that. He has proven himself to be a competent executive, and he can make the tough decisions. He gets a multitude of counsel before he acts. He doesn't try to please everybody, and he is deeply concerned about the well-being of the church and the members, and he is committed to our service. Another thing, what can God trust you for? What can God trust you for? That was the third one. Well, to always stay with his truth and to always support his work, can he trust you for that? He wants to know. He wants to know. What can he trust us to do? Our reward is based on what God can trust us to do for all eternity, based on our demonstrated works and our converted character. Just give a little additional dimension to that. I hope we can understand that a little better today, how he is working in us and why. And the fourth one, what can we trust God to do? Well, of course, many, many things. But uh, today, just to simplify, we saw that we can trust God to do what he says and to pursue his plan to completion. He will do what he said. Everything else comes from these great purposes. Why can we trust God to deliver what he said? He said that's the purpose of the existence of all creation. You are the ones on whom the final outcomes, the ends of the world, the ends of the age, the ends of the whole cosmos are come. God's family. That's why he's doing it. He will sustain his church. We can trust him to do it. So let's stay with the truth. Let's stay with the work. And trust in God with all our hearts and lead not on our own understanding.